The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we have another episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, where we put your questions to a leading expert. This time we're speaking about the Black Death with Professor John Hatcher. Putting your questions to John on the medieval plague was our content director, David Musgrove. Right. Today, I'm joined by uh, John Hatcher, who is Emeritus Professor of Economic and Social History at the University of Cambridge and author of The Black Death, An Intimate History. Um, So today, uh, as always with our Everything You Want to Know podcast, we've asked you, the audience, uh, to submit questions on an interesting topic. And the topic today is The Black Death. So thank you for your questions. And we will jump straight in. So, John, the first question, this is the most popular internet search topic, is when did The Black Death start and end? So can you kick us off with that, please? Yeah, it's it's very well known. Started in 1346. And in Mongolia, possibly East China, but certainly in the high steppes region there. And it then went on a massive circuit of the known world coming south and moving eastwards. So across the Mediterranean, North Africa, and then working its way up. Uh, it's uh, Spain uh, up into Britain. It comes to England in uh, 1348 in Dorset, uh, spreads to the rest of of England and, and Ireland in 1349, and then up to Scotland late 1349, early 1350. And then it starts moving eastwards, back uh, to where it started so that uh, it's back in uh, Russia and China in 1353. It takes just seven years to traverse the whole of that really massive arc of the known world. And it's it's moving at uh, two uh, different paces. There's a much faster movement by the sea routes and then it enters countries via the seaports, by and large, and then proceeds to move much more slowly over land. So it's hitting coastal Italy, coastal Spain, coastal France. And again, with England, it, it hits at uh, near Bournemouth in, in Dorset, and then starts moving north across the whole of, of England, uh, in a, a relentless way, and it spends in the an average sized village uh, two months. It's from start to finish, and obviously longer in large cities. And eventually disappears. It ceases. It ceases in England, for example, in. In 1349, uh, Scotland a little bit later, and then that's it. Although another major epidemic comes back later. Okay, so so th- that's the the basic story there. The Black Death spreads uh, eastwards across um, Europe and North Africa, uh, and uh, and and has very severe consequences. Do we have another popular internet search question? Is um, how many people died? Do we, are we able to make a, a, a any sort of informed estimate as to the, as to the death rate? Uh, well, people do. Uh, the the death rate. Uh, and that's not the death rate amongst people who catch it, but in the population as a whole, is between 35 and 50%. And a generally accepted figure for Europe is a population of 80 million. And that means that uh, 30 to 40 million people will have died in the, in the Black Death. Uh, 
if you caught it, you had a two-thirds chance. That's, again, using uh, the behaviour of plague in, in the t- late 19th, 20th century. You have a two-thirds chance of dying if it's left untreated. Nowadays, it's easily cured by um, antibiotics. So it's a it's a pretty so, pretty hideous mortality rate, though, when when you when you consider that. Yes, I bore people by explaining the difference between uh, COVID nineteen, where we're used to seeing statistics not in percentages, but in hundred thousand or per million. And once you you scale it back, uh, I mean, it's it's. Uh, even in the worst hit places, it's 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 one in a hundred dying from it. When it's Black Death, we're talking about f- fifty in a hundred. So I mean, that's it, that's absolutely terrifying when yes. you when you look at it in that context. Yes. Um, yeah. do, do, uh, an, another um, popular question. This one uh, we have from from one of our uh, readers, Joe Pierce, who asks, um, "How did it get the name Black Death?" So it's quite specific to mm. this mid fourteenth century um, uh, variant, isn't it? Yes. Uh, the answer is we we don't quite quite know. It what we do know is that the Greeks and the Romans, when they're dealing with uh disastrous diseases, tended to call them black, meaning horrific and terrible. So it's just a negative uh connotation. Uh and that seems the the most likely explanation. But the other explanation, which they needn't be mutually exclusive, is that uh, bubonic plague actually causes a necrosis in the skin. So you, if you're infected in uh, under your armpits initially, and you have a bubo growing there, as it reaches full term, it'll blacken. And it's the same with the extremities, fingers and toes will start blackening. So it, it was black in that sense as well. And I think it's 17th century when it's generally called the Black Death. At the time of the plague and in the 14th, 15th centuries, it's the Great Pestilence. The Great Plague, Great Pestilence, and later becomes the, the Black Death. Right, so um, we had quite a few questions that were exploring the, the question of what actually uh, th- this pestilence was, and you've mentioned the bubonic plague uh, earlier. Uh, Lawrence G. Uh, G. Tilly asked it quite nicely. He said, was it the bubonic plague, a pneumonic variant, or something else? Was it essentially the same as the 1665 Great Plague? Lawrence says he's heard so many contradictory answers on this over the years, and he just wonders where we are with it. <laughs> it's absolutely categorically, definitively plague and overwhelmingly uh, bubonic. I can talk if, uh, a little bit about other variants, but we're here initially bubonic plague, which spreads by a bite from an infected insect. So the normal way it's seen as, as spreading um, is being bitten by a rat flea. A black rat will be killed by the disease, with the, by the fleas infecting it. The fleas will then come onto a human host and, uh, and kill them. Uh, it's actually a very mechanical process, and about 20, 20, 25 years ago, possibly 30, 40 years ago, people started to have doubts about whether the Black Death was plague. And it was basically, how on earth do you get a death rate as high as that, spreading across the whole of Europe, with every individual needing to be bitten by an infected flea? And we know from the records at the time that relatively few people died from pneumonic plague uh, or from septicemic plague, they both existed, but they were small. It was basically bubonic plague that was killing them. And how on earth do you get to that level of infections? And for a, you know, a quarter of a century, the 
view that started to prevail was it, it had to be a virus. And there were various fanciful uh, suggestions of the virus that might have caused it. All the way through, I was objecting to this because of contemporary descriptions. The Black Death is a very unusual disease. The swelling of the lymph nodes, the buboes, the process of transmission. So the contemporaries didn't know how it was being caused, but they knew through observing... These were intelligent people, just observed the symptoms in the, in the victims. And it, it, it seemed to some of us that it, it, it had to be bubonic plague. We're still puzzling uh, about exactly how it would have spread. And increasingly, the view is that in addition to rat fleas, it's human fleas, and particularly, I think, which is is, is one of my favourites in a sense, is uh, lice, head lice, body lice, who have been found to be able to carry the uh, microorganism Yersinia pestis. And I think if you uh, people were full of lice, the clothes were full of lice. Uh, they had fleas on them as well. A lot of things must have combined to cause these horrendous death rates. So I think all of these, uh, they, they're called ectoparasites, carrying it and infecting people. And if you're riddled with rice, lice, your clothes are riddled with lice, you're getting close to spread between human-to-human -human spread in the way that you see with the virus with droplet infections, uh, people mixing together, sharing clothes, sharing beds that are infested with lice. But that still remains uh, a speculation. It's not, it's not at all clear. So there's a lot we don't know about the plague. So you've just preempted uh, <laughs> a question by Anne Godden, which was, is it now accepted right. that the vector was human body lice? And you're, and you're saying that um, it's... It's it's a theory, but it's we 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 can't we can't no, say yes or no to it, it. It's not accepted. A lot of people object greatly to it. Um, there's somebody who's written a major book on the plague, uh, Benedicto, uh, Oli Benedicto. He's adamant that it was human flea. Uh, I've always felt that the lice were able to explain how it spread and the death rates. And you know, I was reading a study this morning just to catch up, and it's a study suggesting through laboratory tests that under certain circumstances, the lice can be very effective carriers of Yersinia pestis. So people are getting infected uh, from the lice they're carrying around with them. But it's, it's still a matter of dispute. And there was a huge... Uh, EU grant, uh, probably three, four years ago, studying the Black Death, and it's still underway, and the spread of the Black Death, simply to try and explain it with the possibilities for the, of the information that they came up with being useful for future, <laughs> as we found out with our own pandemic. Uh, and it remains... Of, a considerable problem. How on earth did that number of people become infected? And and we know why they died from it, but it's it's the rate of infection, and it's it's really quite remarkable with the English evidence that places of scattered settlement seem to have suffered mortality on pretty similar extent to places of uh, more dense settlement. Towns suffered worse, but. If you go up to uh, Northumberland, they've got some good records, Durham and Northumberland. The death rates there are comparable with the death rates in eastern Engl England, which is much more densely settled at the time. So lots of puzzles. But is there, is there, is there any, uh, any contention that black rats, ship rats, were, were involved in the transmission, or is that people are still... Yes, no, it would be... No, I think... Uh, I think the old way of explaining the transmission, black rats and fleas, is certainly uh, still holds up. It's whether that can be the only way. Uh, uh, 
the more one learns, you know, as one does if one's studying it, about the behaviour of rats, they're very territorial. They don't go wandering around. They stay in the perimeter of, of each house that they're infecting. And so that alone is not possible to explain the, the scale and spread of it, no. In my view, <laughs> and and what you, you mentioned that the the symptoms, uh, mm. the the, the, um, the it, as I was described in the documentary references, were very clear. What what are the what were the symptoms of of Black Death? Uh, well, it was a general, uh, yeah, picking the best one. The, the trouble with uh, some historians who argue the opposite is that they don't choose the best descriptions. You can find people describing. Uh, quite inappropriate and incorrect symptoms. But the the ones from people who knew, like the papal physician wrote a treatise on the plague very accurately, and it starts with a general malaise, and then it's a spreading, uh, uh, a, a growth, a swelling in the, the lymph nodes, the under the neck, in the groin, uh, and that is where the, the plague itself the uh, Yersinia pestis is fighting uh, to overcome the defence mechanisms of the body and it's concentrated in the lymph nodes. And uh, they give the some of the effects that take place later on, which is, uh, you know, spots on the screen, uh, on the skin and then uh, blackening of the extremities. And there's no other disease that we know about Given the time scale of the death, uh, which is within uh, three to five days of the first symptoms, uh, virus doesn't it doesn't fit anything else. So, which is why uh, some of us were holding out for it <laughs> not to be a virus. But it's the excavation of bones uh, on Black Death burial sites. Uh, plague burial sites, and DNA analysis, which has advanced massively in the last 10 years. And they're just finding Yersinia pestis in the, in the victims there. So you can date the cemeteries precisely. And then, which isn't, isn't that difficult because they're 10 times larger than they would otherwise have been uh, with the bodies crammed in. But again, as documentary evidence tells you where the cemeteries are, and then uh, the archaeologists, uh, bio-archaeologists, uh, uh, examine the bones and the teeth, and they're finding uh, Yersinia pestis, which proves it was bubonic plague. Um, uh, you mentioned it was like a, a three to five day um, before you passed away. Was it a particularly unpleasant way to die? Do, do we think what's, what sort of records yes. do we get on that? What's the... What it... uh, yeah, well, people, uh, yeah, it develops into, you know, with great pain in the, in the, in the lymph nodes, but also splitting headaches. And it says that people rage with the pain and the stories of them. These, the Italian sources are particularly good, um, describing people running wild in the streets, you know, throwing their clothes off because they're so the body's overheating and uh, having to be restrained. So it's that's a very unpleasant disease. Hmm. Um, uh, question here from uh, PorkyPie17, who uh, who says that um, uh, he or she has heard some people were immune to the Black Death or just never got sick. Um, did, mm -hmm. Are you aware of any evidence to that effect? Yes. Yep. Uh, there were some interesting studies uh, a few years ago uh, where people sort of stepped out, and these are scientists, uh, medical scientists interested in the Black Death, as a lot of them are, uh, and asking the question, why didn't everybody die? Why didn't everybody get it? Well, some of the explanation of that is that they wouldn't have come into close contact with uh, the source of infection. The other explanation is, which seems the most likely uh, one, is that some people have a genetic uh, mutation, which, uh, call it that, which means they're immune. They just don't catch it. 
And there was a very interesting article which said that why did people survive? And we're all survivors. You know, if you've got a, a European, North African heritage, we're all survivors of the Black Death. And why are we the survivors? Well, the survivors... Uh, I'm not, I haven't read anything more recently, but that, again, was interesting that some people... For example, TB. Some people are immune to TB, very, very unlikely to catch it. So you get diseases which uh, some people uh, are resistant to, and it's it 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 seems likely that because uh, once you get up to if if half the people are dying from the Black Death, it means that uh, sort of seventy percent of them are catching it. Uh, of whom 50%, uh, well, most of them die who catch it, well, then you're thinking, why doesn't everybody catch it if it's spreading at this rate? Uh, and the answer probably lies in natural immunity, some people. Uh, but the, the other fascinating thing, that I didn't think you had a question about it, but it was very interesting, is... Uh, is also related to why it's so difficult to catch the plague now. Uh, it, the disease is virtually identical uh, with the uh, reconstruction of the genome. The Black Death, they've reconstructed it entirely. And far from it being a particularly virulent strain, it's virtually identical to the one that is present today in a number of countries. But it's very difficult to catch now, uh, whereas obviously then. And again, this suggests to the growth of, growth of immunity in the population at large, the way some diseases wax and wane, is partly the nature of the disease itself, but it's partly human resistance grows and immunity grows. Uh, let's move on to the to the question of response. So we talked a bit about what the disease was and what it might have been. Um, uh, Shane Street has asked uh, on Twitter, are there any well-attested examples of towns or villages saving themselves by strict isolation? So a question born a little bit out of, of, of current experience, I guess. Um, is, is, was isolation uh, an effective way of preventing uh, the spread of the disease? Nope. <laughs> no, there's no example that I know. In it's a policy that that develops over time. Of uh, and there were attempts in in Italy, uh, in particular, odd attempt in Germany for cities to try to cut themselves off, stop anybody coming into the city, uh, but. Uh, I haven't heard of a village attempting to do this. In fact, it'd be pretty impossible to do. And uh, I certainly haven't come across a case of somewhere that uh, tried that policy if it was a town. Well, lots of them tried it, and particularly with later plagues, they try it, but with very little success. Um, isolation and... Uh, uh, quarantine come by the late 16th, 17th century, particularly in Venice, where they use the islands, but but not at this time. Okay, so that takes us back, I guess, a bit to sort of the means of transmission, how it's spreading, which um, which you've already explained is uh, is a little bit of a mystery in some ways. Um, uh, Ian Dawson on Twitter's got a good question, uh, which was, uh, "What foods did people think would cure the plague? Did uh, did people have any observations on that?" Uh, I'm not sure there were recommended foods, except in a, a negative sense. What there are are foods that you should avoid at all costs because these would be likely to promote your uh, susceptibility to plague. And uh, the, one of the most common explanations at the time is that the plague is what they called a miasmic cloud of infection, which was blown hither and thither by the wind, which is why you couldn't keep it out of the town or why it spread. They obviously, if you'd have explained to somebody in the 14th century, it was actually caused by a tiny microorganism 
organism that you couldn't see <laughs> from a flea. They'd have laughed at you, uh, and probably quite rightly. It was so wild. But this miasmic cloud seems to explain a lot of how it spreads and is it's impossible to stop. And they saw the, uh, the leading physicians saw individuals being infected through the pores of their skin, uh, which again sounds sounds plausible, uh, and therefore they advised against eating hot, spicy foods or food cooked uh, when it was too hot, having baths, engaging in any uh, major physical activities which would open up your pores and make you more susceptible to uh, to catching the plague. But I'm not sure there's there's that much of a a concentration on uh, on diet as such. Uh, but I think the, the examples I've come across are, are things that you should eat. Mm. You know, peppery foods and spicy foods and so on. Okay. So the preventative measure was to try and keep the pores shut, which presumably wasn't a particularly effective measure. Um, was was there anything uh, by way of treatment that um, that, that uh, physicians suggested, i.e. once you'd got Black Death, was, did, did anyone suggest anything that you could do or was it basically uh, you're, you're on your own? There are various attempts to, amongst surgeons, to lance the bubo which uh, <laughs> had no effect at all. Uh, no, the advice, uh, in fact, it's the same with the church. I, I can talk a bit about that later. Uh, the contemporary physicians, a large number of them said, the best advice I can give you is if the plague's coming to your area, get out, <laughs> run away as fast and as far as you can. Don't mix with other people. Uh, but they weren't explaining why. Uh, so you don't get much of an explanation of person-to-person uh, -person infections. And I think, yeah, just to mention, uh, open up an interesting point, is that the ordinary person, of course most people are farmers, had more idea about the transmission of diseases than the the great physicians because they saw how if an animal had a, a skin infection one of your sheep had scab you kept it away from all the others therefore they had this basic knowledge they probably i don't know it was written down but if you had a heavy cold people would steer away from you uh, so this advice was was just common sense uh, in fact, it's very close to the advice we get now with coronavirus. You know, uh, you know wash, uh, but keep distance. Don't spend time with lots of people. And uh, so with the, you get this fast academic apparatus of disease, which dates back particularly to Galen in the uh, uh, leading Greek physician. Uh, which hangs together very, very well, and therefore they're attempting to fit the plague into this, and it doesn't doesn't fit at all well. Mm. And then you have a parallel knowledge amongst ordinary people from what they've observed around them. Yeah, yeah. Galen, that's the the humours mm. um, idea. Yes, yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. yeah, and of course, the, with the plague, the humours would be unbalanced, and eating hot food would provide too much of this, and so on. So that's how they, but. It, uh, they obviously weren't uh, going along the right lines, but then I, I, I don't think anybody was. Mm -hmm. You 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 mentioned then sort of the religious aspect to um to to the disease and D Withers has asked on Twitter how much did people think it was God's work and uh, how many people thought there was a like a secular reason for it even though they didn't know how diseases spread. So I suppose that the question there is yeah what what, what was the what was the role of the church in uh, in in this? Yeah. Uh, well, in the whole of the uh, the Christian and Muslim worlds, some an event so great as this and so awful as this had to be God's will. Uh, it was beyond 
definition, really. It, it wasn't a matter for discussion. Uh, even if they'd have understood how it was spread, it would still have been God's will that was causing it to, to happen in the first place. So it's it's then presents the church, uh, and I've studied the, the Christian church more than uh, the Islamic church on this. Uh, it's very interesting how confronted with something on this scale, which clearly has to be God's will, they don't leap in or the, the, the better church leaders and theologians don't leap in immediately explaining why God is doing this. In fact, a large number of them say they're perplexed. It's not for us to explain because clearly the world around the time of the mid-14th century isn't particularly sinful. <laughs> they can find all sorts of things. They complain about uh, young women uh, consorting with champions at tournaments or wearing low-cut dresses or behaving inappropriately or various sinful behaviours of people. But there's hardly anybody at the time saying, this is why God's killing you, <laughs> because you're doing this. So it, they refer back, uh, as you would, to the, the plagues in Egypt in the Old Testament. You know, this is what God does from time to time to punish us, to get us to reform ourselves. But, uh, yeah, it, it simply had to be God's will. There was no... There must have been some people who didn't believe this, who didn't want to believe it, but this is where the whole of the, the learning and teaching and beliefs of the time would lead you. And uh, that, uh, so they pray for forgiveness, then you get in an extreme form the, the flagellants. There's a marvellous film, The Seventh Seal, uh, Bergman in the 1950s. There's a scene with the flagellants coming into a village and they welcome the flagellants with open arms because they're, they're actually uh, flagellating, they're whipping themselves to death uh, to take the sins of the world on their shoulders. So that's the extreme version of it. But uh, people had to become less sinful uh, and it, it, it creates an immense uh, religious intellectual uh, tumult really about uh, trying to reconcile things and I think there is a link a clear link through with the the Reformation uh, so uh, yeah there's no getting away from a religious interpretation at the time although I think people in their own minds may have doubted it but everything is is geared up to that uh, what they're being told uh, how they're meant to behave our, um, our readers and listeners I know are fascinated in that, uh, the, the flagellants idea. Uh, so that's people going through the streets, you know, whipping themselves to, to, to free themselves from sins. Uh, so how, how widespread was that then? So uh, it, it, it fades out. It's, uh, it's very prominent for a time. So you get a number of movements developing or uh, behavioural patterns. One is punishing minorities, believing that they're spreading it. So people believe it's spread by the Jews who poison the wells. The flagellants, uh, it's a very natural uh, extension of, uh, of atoning for one's sins. And to uh, so some people are praying to God, they're attempting to to do good works, other people are are flaying themselves with whips so that God God will turn His anger away from the world, and uh, things will be right again. Um, right, let's move on to a, a couple of questions about um, who it uh, who the Black Death impacted. So, uh, Mana Habib asked whether there was a, a, a significant class divide regarding those uh, who contracted it, and uh, also wondered about whether it affected men more than women. And then, uh, sort of alongside that, Kate Nicholas, um, who's a school teacher, uh, says that her Year Seven students always want to know whether it affected rich people more than poor people, and specifically whether anyone from the royal family contracted it. So, a few questions there that perhaps you could try and tackle in right. one. Yeah, I could start with the 
the royal family, the a daughter of Edward III, the reigning monarch, died from the plague. I think she was about 14, and she'd been betrothed to Peter of Castile, one of these family uh, connections, political connections. And she went off to uh, Bordeaux before the plague had hit England and actually caught it in France and died from it, along with a number of her her courtiers. Uh, but in answer to the question, did the rich suffer more, uh, the, suffer less, the answer is yes, they did. Um, but it's quite interesting in the longer term. The reason they suffered less, I think, was that they had all particularly, and what the rich people we can measure uh, precisely are the the barons and the uh, the nobles of England, because their records, if they died, they had to have a record of their death and inheritance passed through the courts. So we know exactly how many uh, of those died. And it's it's only in the first, in the Black Death, it's 22% uh, compared with, say, double that for the population at large. And the reasons for this are, as I say, they they could flee in the face of the plague. Ordinary people couldn't. They'd be driven out of whatever village they went to or they had no means of supporting themselves. So, it, But it's a realistic thing to do. And in fact, uh, Boccaccio's Decamerons, they flee up into the hills, don't they, uh, the Cameron tales. Uh, so... That's part of the reason. They also tended to live more in stone dwellings and also have servants who'd be in the kitchens where the rats were and the storerooms. So those uh, factors explain. But interestingly, in the the second outbreak, which comes in 1361-62, they actually suffer as the same as everybody else. Uh, possibly because they haven't been exposed before. Uh, but uh, it doesn't appear as if it's a disease that uh, favours the rich uh, per se, uh, or those who are well-fed. Uh, uh, but uh, it, it could be, it's to do with overcrowding to some extent, but health doesn't seem to come into it. It seems to kill people regardless of how fit they are, uh, how wealthy they are, uh, how old they are. There's studies of burial grounds and an analysis of the age distribution of victims. And uh, it's it's not a disease that discriminates in the way that, say, uh, the, the present coronavirus does, where it's very heavily weighted against uh, the elderly almost rising vertically once you get beyond about 65. So, yeah, the rich tend to do better, but uh, for reasons not connected with the disease, but just being able to escape and isolate themselves. But they're still hit very hard. What about that point about the gender divide? Are we able to discern mm. any difference between male and female susceptibility? Mm. Uh, not not really. The and I'm trying to think now. Uh, it 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 seems to hit women and men at the same at the same level. By the 17th century, and I, I'm trying to think if there's been a more up to date study. Uh, you have what are called the London Bills of Mortality, which are drawn up each time a plague hits the city, and they provide a breakdown of age and sex. Uh, and I think at that time, it seems to switch. One plague outbreak would hit women more than men, but not overwhelmingly, sort of uh, 55, 45. Uh, the next plague might reverse that. Uh, so I'm not sure there is a... I'm desperately trying to think of something that, as I did when you... Uh, I knew about the question. Uh, I don't think there is anything that's pointing much in one direction 
yes, there was, or absolutely no, there wasn't, except all the evidence as a whole suggests that there wasn't a huge uh, difference in the death rates between men and women. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But for all the the horror of of COVID and the, the high death rates, we've got the benefit of having explanations for it, of a vaccine being developed, being told how it spreads. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Um, right, let's uh, let's move on to uh, how it's finished, um, if we can. So uh, Kat Kiri O'Connor, who again is a history teacher, um, has a, an excellent question uh, from her year seven students who, who want to know how it went away. So, And she'd love to be able to give them a, a proper historian's answer. So do we know how the Black Death... Um, finished. No, I, I mean she could write a very good uh, research paper if she knew the answers to that. It's it, 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 it's very very puzzling. Uh, we know that it goes away. Uh, that thirteen forty nine is the last case of bubonic plague in in England. It doesn't come back. It comes back, as I say. Uh, 13 years later, but it just stops. It stays in a village. I've studied a particular village which had excellent records, including a number of manorial courts that overlapped, which enable you to uh, date the the plague deaths uh, really with very considerable accuracy. And it just stops. Uh, there's a dribble of deaths afterwards, but then it's it's gone. And uh, we don't really know exactly what is happening. Uh, does it kill all the people who are likely to have been susceptible to it or not? We, we just don't know. The, a much bigger, well, an equally large mystery is why this is the second plague uh, pandemic uh, we're now in the third one, um, and the first one was Justinian's plague in the 6th century. So the second plague pandemic lasts until the Great Plague of London in 1665-1666, and in Europe, the Great Plague of Marseille in 1720. But as I'm saying, the Great Plague of London, the Great Plague of Marseille, most explanations, logical explanations of the plague dying out would appear to be the growth of natural immunity in the population, the disease uh, waning in virulence, the uh, the black rat disappearing <laughs> uh, and the, uh, the brown rats not being as effective a, a carrier. But then <laughs> why? Does it end with the Great Plague of London, which is the worst plague uh, for a century? The plague in Marseille is phenomenal in 1720, and then that's it. It's gone. I don't think there's been an explanation as to why. You can make up all sorts of, well, possible reasons, but it's very, very strange. You'd think the thing would just fade away, wouldn't you? Uh, <laughs> We'd lo- and it doesn't. It ends up with these spectacular events. Uh, very odd. So sounds like a, a mystery waiting for an answer. <laughs> so I'm sorry, um, Kat, we, we, haven't, yes. we haven't got uh, the answer for your students there, but, um, but perhaps, uh, perhaps they could work on it and, uh, and we'll, we'll see what we're going to yes. um, We've got uh, quite a few questions which we can sort of conflate a bit about the, uh, the, the aftermath of the plague. As you say, it went away. And uh, there's been a lot written about the impact of this uh, huge mortality on society and economy 
after the fact. So um, just to take a few questions. So EBC0111 wants to know what's the link between societal change and the significant de decrease in population uh, that, uh, that follow the Black Death. And then Joshua Rice asked about how the economies of Europe or, or just of England uh, recovered from this huge loss of their population and the, and the consequent tr loss of trade. And then Palm Plumber um, wanted to know about the long-term impacts on, uh, on on the economy generally. So, so a few questions there that are broadly asking the same sort of thing. Um, and you're you're very well placed to offer a view on that, uh, <laughs> given given your 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 job title. Well, when I was reading uh, history at, at university, the current view was that the Black Death, yes, it killed a lot of people, but it didn't have that much of an effect. <clears throat> Uh, and the explanation for that was that uh, history was a process whereby humans dictated how things would end up. You've got the growth of sociology and uh, analytical explanations of, uh, of change in society, which were caused by human behaviour and human institutions. They determined the outcomes rather than uh, somebody coming along with a, a great sledgehammer and whacking the world and saying, sort that lot out. Uh, we swung back uh, to giving the, the Black Death and linking that with the later epidemics, the collapse of population, and giving it very considerable weight in the outcome. And it's just a few... It's basically an agrarian population across Europe. A few places like Venice aren't, but overwhelmingly 80, 85% agrarian. The population falls. It leads to uh, more land per head. It leads to a scarcity of labour. Uh, and that leads to rising wages for labour, uh, falling rents for land, land becomes cheaper. And those processes occurring at the heart of society create a major problem for the existing structure of society with the, the nobles controlling the land and having a system of, uh, of serfdom, people being bound to the land, uh, it's incredibly difficult to enforce as a system uh, because the lord of the manor had some soldiers. We didn't have enough soldiers to <laughs> capture peasants who'd run away to settle on free land elsewhere. So the latest view, and a, a, a colleague of mine uh, was just produced a book on it, Mark Bailey, is the decline of serfdom. And it's the undermining of the feudal system by the scarcity of people. In other words, the system was maintained partly by the law and the military power of lords, but much more by the fact that there were too many people around anyway. The 13th, early 14th century population is reaching very high levels, which aren't being reached again until the 18th century. And, of course, a much less productive society. So that meant that people wouldn't run away from the land. they stay on the land. <laughs> and they were controlled by the fact that uh, they didn't want to be evicted and so on. So that, that's conditioning society. Once that goes... Um, the population is cut by half and the plague keeps <clears throat> coming back and uh, <clears throat> stopping the ability of population to recover. <clears throat> Lords find themselves forced into giving concessions and you get the, the, the system of serfdom has gone uh, effectively early in the 15th century in England. Uh, Elsewhere, and you do get in uh, what is now the eastern part of Germany and Poland, a reimposition, a strengthening of serfdom by sheer force 
So lords can react in two ways. They can make concessions, be forced to go along with it, because they're still going to be rich. They'll just lose some of their power and authority, but they'll face up to the circumstances. Or they can attempt to impose their will by force. In England, that was never really much of an option because the distribution of land, each major land holder might have had a, a sort of base where his uh, power was a bit concentrated. But in fact, they'd have land spread in four or five, six different counties. And this was the deliberate policy of William the Conqueror. He didn't want to set up princes within the kingdom. In Eastern Europe in particular, you have uh, princes holding huge tracts of land. Therefore, it's easier to control the population within those tracts of land than if all you have to do is run down the road to settle on somebody else's land and escape from your lord. So it becomes uh, inevitable and it leads, obviously, to disputes and discontent, which is why you get the peasants' revolt, uh, why you get revolts across Europe. It's a massively unsettling uh, balance of power uh, with working ordinary people becoming more powerful and being held back by the rules of the time or the the richer people who are attempting to keep them uh in a position of subservience, and this gives rise to the rebellions we see. But it's, you know, in most countries, it's a one-way process. Economic realities rule in the end, and uh, the system uh, declines and collapses. So massive social changes. And it, in terms of living standards, the, uh, the ordinary people uh, are doing much better. They're paying less for their land. They hold more land. They get paid more for the work they do. And that comes at the expense of the, uh, of the landlords and the rich who have to forego more of their huge share of, of income. And uh, so I, it, it's now seen as a very decisive turning point so um your answer to, to the <clears throat> question uh from miss carter which was did the lives of survivors improve or get worse would be that if you're if yeah, you're poorer got much you, better. you got better uh yes. but but for yes. the rich perhaps yep. a, a little bit of the yeah, crime, but, but, but it, it's all relative eh? yeah the, it, it's an incredibly unequal society mm. so the great landlords suffer in a sense uh but uh they People muddle on, so you get rebellions, but even that calms down and people just rub along together. So they end up paying more wages, they end up collecting less rents, Mm. but are still rich. And uh, So it leads to very substantial changes in, in society of that sort. Uh, yeah, and in England specifically, am I right in thinking that the, the the government of the of the day did try and preserve the situation with with things like statutes yep. of labourers and, and things yes, like that, didn't they? Absolutely, yeah, and that is a major factor creating discontent in the peasants' revolt. Yes, the statutes of labourers are an attempt to uh, keep wages at the level they were before the Black Death, uh, which is. Uh, incredibly difficult to do because employers break the statutes all the time. Uh, you need a uniformity of, and it's it's what economists call a free rider. If you're somebody who says, yes, this is a great policy, let's keep wages down. But in fact, if I need to, I'll employ people and give the wages necessary to get the harvest in. So you have these these conflicts taking place. And also, it's uh, an inflationary period in in the sense that uh, food prices stay high for quite a while uh, because I think of the general disruption to production. They then start to come down. But the price of, of goods, of shoes, contemporary chroniclers are complaining all the time you know five years ago i could buy buy a good pair of shoes for 
for sixpence. I now have to pay 14 pence and the shoes are nowhere near good enough because people won't work properly. So uh, there's much greater freedom. But the fact that uh, yeah, I'm old enough to remember the, uh, yeah, way before your time, the prices and incomes policy, uh, where the government actually, in a period of rapid inflation, tried to control uh, wages. And what happened is it's the, I think they've faded now, but luncheon vouchers, suddenly all the firms were giving luncheon vouchers because they could give you the price of a lunch in a, in a ticket that you took to the local restaurant, uh, and it wasn't breaching the statute. There's also a great rash of promotions so that people who before had been on the bottom rail remained on the bottom rail, but they were given a, a job title of, uh, of, of supervisor or manager. <laughs> and so everybody was... Because the economic realities have to work through, or else you need a, a really draconian uh, uh, system of uh, you know, dictatorship and imprisonment and so on. And they try it, but it, it won't work. Uh, and people are the employers are competing against each other, lords are competing against each other, they're all complaining other people are doing it, but I obey the rules. And so it creates a lot of discontent by trying to enforce it, but in the end it's 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 not successful. Hmm. Okay, <clears throat> uh, just a, a couple more questions uh to to finish up with about um uh, about <clears throat> today and today's reaction to the Black Death. And a really good, interesting <clears throat> question from uh Yorn Eichhorn on Twitter who asks, in what way has the COVID-19 crisis already changed our understanding and assessment of the people's behaviour during the time of Black Death? So we have this pandemic going on. Has it? Um, do, do you think that that, that experience has, uh, has led scholarship in an interesting direction? Uh, it's, it's a bit early to say. I think it, in my mind, it... Uh, is uh, explain uh, tells us something about people's behaviour at the time, given the scale of the deaths that they were facing. That, in a broad sense, law and order and life didn't continue the same, but it, human relationships continued in a similar in a similar way. So you get you get uprisings from time to time, but normal everyday life carried on during the plague and we're suffering a much smaller death rate and uh, you know it's, it's in a sense it's causing at least as much well no it isn't but <laughs> you know what I mean it's uh, difficult to explain I think what you do get at the time amongst the detailed chronicles is the variety of behavior that people show during the black death that uh, some people became extraordinarily religious and spent all their time praying. Other people locked themselves away. Other people <laughs> went to the local brothel all the time and drank their money because if we're going to die, we're going to die. And you see similar sorts of behaviour now where uh, people are, are holding parties, they got fed up with it. Other people are obeying every rule. In fact, the general sense I was reading this morning is the the uh, lockdowns have got general support so we complain about them all the time but there is a majority of people who who believe that this is a policy that has to be followed so I don't know it'll take a while to to see whether there are similarities uh, but for all the the horror of of covid and the the high death rates we've got the benefit of having explanations for it, of a vaccine being developed, being told how it spreads. I mean, people in the Black Death were faced with not only uh, many, many, many times higher death rate, but a lack of explanation of reasons and what's happening, how do we avoid this, what can we do about that? So, I, yeah, it's a good question. But I think it's very early to attempt to to draw parallels. You know? 
Uh, right, last uh, last question, a, a slightly gloomy one to end on in retrospect, but it's from uh, Evie in Year 7 via her teacher, Harriet R. So thank you, Harriet. Lots of school teachers asking questions here, which is interesting because Black Death must be yeah. a topic that's taught in school. It yeah. is. It's a Year yeah. 7 topic. Um, yeah. and, and Evie wants to know, hmm. could a, a new strain of the Black Death come back? And from what you're saying earlier, um, hmm. it's, it's kind of still with us, isn't it? But um, but in a, yes. in a controlled sort of way. Yeah, the, the strains vary. I, I think... The answer is yes, it could, and there's also the possibility that it could be a variant in the strain which uh, transforms itself back into a ferocious killer of a disease. But it it is a disease that's easily cured by antibiotics. You need a fairly early diagnosis, which can be difficult to get because it's a rare disease. When I was in America, I heard of uh, in California, somebody had caught <laughs> bubonic plague uh, skinning uh, squirrels, for <laughs> reasons best known to him. <laughs> the problem he had was getting anybody to understand what it was. But as long as we know that it's it's plague, antibiotics cure it. Except if it becomes pneumonic plague, where nobody ever recovers from that which is it spreads like pneumonia. But this is extremely rare. So there could be a new strain. The Black Death, the bubonic plague doesn't seem to change its characteristics all that much. As I was saying, the analysis of the strain in, 30, in the mid-14th century shows it to be very, very similar to the strain that's currently in uh, Mozambique, occasionally in China, India. Uh, and a number of other countries. It, so it it could, but it wouldn't be horrendous if it did because it would be very easy to treat, much easier to deal with than a virus would be, as we know. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, uh, um, an excellent expert guide to the Black Death. So, Professor John Hatcher, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Professor John Hatcher. His book, The Black Death, A Personal History, is available now from Weidenfeld and Nicholson. You can find a link to purchase it in the description of this podcast. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy another episode from our back catalogue, where David Musgrove talked to Professor Jane Whittle about how the Black Death shaped England's economy and society. You can find that along with articles about the key facts of the Black Death on our website at historyextra.com. Just go to the search bar and type in Black Death. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow when Jeremy Krang will be speaking about the Blitz. <laughs>